to get here. But, uh, you know, this morning as I was, uh, uh, I, was, I was walking out, I was thinking about tonight, and I was thinking about how to begin our conversation. This is a little bit like um, when you were younger, you were probably told there's two things you shouldn't see made, law and sausages. Welcome. Welcome to the Sausage Factory. That's what we're going to, going to do for you tonight. This kind of talk is the one that my mother would always put her head in her hands and say, Darren, you've learned too much. It's driving you insane, and you uh, need to stop annoying people with it. Be aware, friends, that I'm keenly attuned to that. And yet, the very fact that I warned you this morning and you came back says you are in for the appropriate thing. Let us begin our time with a, a moment of prayer. Our, our beloved first family member, Michael Doby, passed away this morning. Uh, Michael has been ill for some time, uh, but he is, uh, he, his wife Catherine and I spoke during the Sunday school hour this morning. We're working on plans for a service later in the week. Uh, likewise, let's pray for the family of Gloria Lott. Miss Gloria passed away on Christmas Eve, if memory serves. Uh, we're going to do her service on Friday of this week right here in the chapel at 1. Let's pray for these families. Won't you join me? And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you as the God of mercy, of comfort, of peace. And we ask, Lord, your blessings over the Doby family and the Lott family. I'm grateful, Jesus, for the way that you have shown your kindness. Both of those lives, Gloria and Michael, were lived to your honor and your glory. We thank you for the legacy that they leave, and we thank you, Jesus, for putting them in our lives. And so as they are now in your care in a new way, we entrust them there. It's not that we have another choice, but Lord Jesus, we do so with love because we know they were always yours. Would you now meet with us in this time of study, Lord? Make your word clear and help us, Lord, to know your heart. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our key passage for tonight is the same as it was this morning, Revelation 20, the first six verses. Let me read them again for you. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast and its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. Therein lies some of the most difficult interpretive section that we find anywhere in the entire book of Revelation. As I mentioned earlier today, this passage is one that we handle gingerly only because we are not sure of what we don't know. But we know there are many pitfalls that have caught up many. Let us pause here and say no one's eternal future hangs on what they believe about eschatology, the study of the end times. 
We started with this last year. Now we are almost done, and we'll say it again. You can choose to be anything millennial and still find yourself at the foot of Jesus Christ, the risen one, just as easily. The joke is told about the amillennial, one who uh, believes differently than a premillennial, both arriving in heaven to find out they were both wrong. When the reality is that cub-millennialists had, had it right all along. Cub-millennialists, those who believed that Christ would return only after the Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> Maybe we should switch that to the cowboy-millennials. So this conversation that we will have tonight, it is not eternal in nature. I underscore that only because I don't want you to go from here saying, well, Darren thinks differently about this matter than I do. He can be wrong if he wants to, but I'm going to go to heaven. If you are one who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will be there, along with all others who do too, even if they disagree with you. So with that thought in mind, that this is important but not eternal, that we won't divide fellowship over it and we won't allow ourselves to become divided over it, let us ask the question about this entire unit. What is the most biblical view of the end time? Now, the very virtue of this question is that there is not a most biblical view. This is a problematic question, and I asked it that way on purpose. Why? Because this is the question that I get usually after we have either in small groups in our Sunday school classes or in uh, a, 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 a Bible study like community Bible study have come to Revelation and someone comes to me and they ask, what is the most biblical view of the end times? There is no answer to that question. So, with that in mind, let us identify the four primary views of the end times. Historical premillennialism, dispensationalism, those two are close sisters, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. These are the four primary things that we have taken uh, a walk through. Let's break each one of them down. We'll start with historic premillennialism. Uh, this is one that uh, is a, a very popular view. And if we were to say which one of these four is the earliest, which one did like church, church fathers, Eusebius and Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, which one of those, which one of these four did they tend toward? I would say it's this one. Let's take a look at it. You'll notice Jesus' birth is on the far left kingdom of God is manifest, made clear. The ascension, Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. The kingdom remains through the Holy Spirit. The apostasy and tribulation breaks out. In other words, this is where Revelation 13 falls right there. And then the first resurrection, the return of Christ, that is preceded by the millennium. So Revelation 20, is right there at the first resurrection in this view. And then the millennium, Satan is bound, the kingdom is consummated. And then a later one, Satan is loose, there's a massive rebellion led by Gog and Magog. We'll pick that up next week, Revelation 20, verse 8 and 9. And then the final judgment, also next week, we call it the great white throne judgment, the second resurrection, and then a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21 at the end. If you were to say, what is the most literal understanding of what we have in, uh, in the New Testament, I would say this is probably about as close as you can get. That's why it was one of the earliest views, if not the earliest. There is a first cousin, or if you like, a sister to this view that began to be popularized about about the 16th, 17th century, but really took off in the 18th century with, uh, with Darby and his writings, and then really took off in the, the 20th century with Schofield Reference Bible and, 
and the things like that. It's called dispensationalism. Click that next. Click to that next slide. It's not very far off the, from what you just saw. We have Jesus and his offer of a messianic kingdom to Israel. So it's much more interested in what uh, the Israel role is in the new kingdom than the other view was. The, ch- the age of grace, uh, and by the way, let me back up and get a running start. Dispensationalism has with it the idea that time is broken into dispensations. Uh, we are currently in the sixth dispensation. There is still yet a seventh one. That is the age of eternity when Jesus comes. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. This age of grace is where we are. See, it says God deals with Gentiles, and thank God for that. Let me just pause and say I'm grateful that God does deal with the Gentiles. Signs of the end. So here's where we might understand Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, even in Midland, and we will have these moments right there. And then the rapture. Uh, this is a term that we'll talk about in a moment, but this rapture precedes the seven years of tribulation, what we know as in Revelation 13, the years of tribulation when the, 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 the beast and the false prophet, three and a half good years, three and a half bad years to follow. And then that's followed by Christ's second coming. Revelation 20 is right here. And this has several elements to it. God deals with Jews and national Israel. Thus, Israel has a special place in the millennium. The repopulation of the earth by the 144 thousand Jews and the new Christians. So they understand Revelation 7 to mean 144,000 Jews specifically. The kingdom of God is fully manifest on earth. In other words, it's all God's kingdom. And then the last piece, return to Old Testament temple worship. This is a key element for it. Every now and then, every few years, maybe a decade or so, you'll see a great hubbub where people take a cornerstone up to the 36-acre Temple Mount, or as we call it, the, the, the site on top of uh, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, and they intend to set a cornerstone, a cornerstone down, and we're going to build the new temple, the new temple. Sometimes they call it the second temple. Sometimes they call it the third, depending on how they understand history. But they set that cornerstone. Here's where we start. This is where the end times begins to be ushered in. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but this is a key part of that. Now, here's the problem with this. If you're going to put Solomon's temple back where it was, and if history is any guide, we have a problem. This 36-acre site, 36 acres is a lot of land. But on this 36-acre plot, there's a very narrow band for where Solomon's temple belongs. And guess what? It's right where the Dome of the Rock is now. In other words, there's not room to put Solomon's temple back where it belongs and keep the Dome of the Rock there too. Perhaps we'll talk about that another time. Let's move along. The nations revolt. Oh, back up. Not quite done with that one yet. There we go. The nations revolt. This is the end of the millennium. The thousand years, Revelation 20, verse 8 and 9. And then the final judgment, the great white throne, and then the eternal state to follow. The biggest difference between historical premillennialism and dispensationalism is Israel's place. A cousin to that is, do, do the Israelites become Christians or do Christians become Israelites? That's the other side of that. All right? Let's move on to the third one, amillennialism. Uh, This is one that is much more uh, close to the first one than the second one that I showed you. Uh, Let's talk about it. Christ's birth, the first advent, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. Christ's resurrection and ascension. But this one, this one says, at that time, Satan is bound He is bound right there at the time when Christ ascends into heaven. And that moment ushers us into the millennium where we are now. Christ is presently reigning in heaven. There's a triumph of the spiritual kingdom of God in the midst of the 
the rise of evil in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. Promises made to Abraham, Israel, and David are fulfilled by Christ or his church. That leads us down to Satan is released and apostasy breaks out. And then Christ's second coming, general resurrection, final judgment, all of Revelation 20 in that moment, followed by a new heaven and a new earth. This is a Reader's Digest version, you might say. An amillennial, it means there is no millennium, no literal 1,000-year reign. You might say, well, what kind of knucklehead would believe something like this? Dr. Todd Still. Perhaps some of you know him. Uh, Dr. Still is a dear friend, and this is the view that he chooses. I hold him no ill will at that point. He can be wrong if he likes. This is a view that um, I've got many friends, actually, that, that, that view things this way. My, my question is, if Satan is bound currently, if Satan is bound right now, what is he bound with? Not much. Silk strings? Uh, it seems he has an awfully long chain if he is indeed bound. Let's move on to the final view. The, uh, uh, I, yeah, here we go. Uh, this view, called postmillennialism, uh, is a, a, a bit of a departure from the first three. If we were grading them on how close they are, the first three would be rather close. This last one is rather far away. The start of the millennium is not clear. It's either abrupt or gradual. Well, doesn't that clear things up for you? It can start all at once or a little at a time. Your choice. The millennium, it may or may not be literal. So it may be an actual thousand years or it might not be an actual thousand years. It's marked by a tremendous expansion of Christianity, increased peace and prosperity in the world, large numbers of ethnic Jews will come to faith in Christ. This piece right here, if you go back to the late 1800s and the early 1900s, it would be possible to say, huh, okay. And that's when this view was most popular. Men such as B.H. Carroll, the founder of Southwestern Seminary, and uh, Dr. George Truitt, pastor of First Baptist Dallas for a great many years. They ascribed to this view for a time. Then that millennium, whether it's literal or not, leads to a short time of apostasy, followed by Christ's return, Revelation 20, the resurrection, the final judgment, which leads to Revelation 21 and the new heaven and the earth. Why did this view fall out of favor? Well, uh, two things. One, World War I. To the Great Depression. Reality snuck in and stifled this view. Now, these four views are not the only ones. There are cousins, you might say, to each of these views, but I want us to take a brief walk with them, and I've given that to you in your, in your notes that you have downloaded, if you have, and if you haven't, that's okay. Uh, but If you want to do further reading, then I want to recommend a book to you. It's one that I've read now several times and I think would do you well if this is something you're really passionate, really interested in. It's written by a man named George Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, Ladd. Title of the book is Meaning of the Millennium. He takes four scholars who ascribe to these four views and invites them to express themselves about why they believe in what they believe. Then he does, and this is the part that I find most interesting, then he does something really remarkable. He gives each of the four the other three and allows them to respond to it. So all of them as if they are sitting around a table, get the chance to debate with their alternative views. It is a wonderful piece of writing, a bit dated now, getting close to 40 years old, but just as timely because the the $5 word is eschatological, meaning end time. The end time views have not changed that much in that time period. Now let's get down to brass tacks. What should you do? about this. Which of these views should you embrace? 
I want to give you some um, anchor points, if you will. Take a look at this with me. You can bump past this. This is just for reading later. Go ahead. Go to the next one. Go on. Which view should you embrace? The reality is it doesn't matter as long as you hold to these four things. Remember, Christ is returning. Yeah, we got that part. Two, remember God's kingdom is eternal, not our eschatological views. Three, embrace Christ's rightful place as sovereign over it. And four, recognize judgment is coming. These pieces, why don't you bump back just a minute more, uh, a minute longer on that slide. These pieces allow us to maintain a sense of balance. What I mean by that is, have you ever seen someone who was spinning plates? Spinning plates, they're a long stick and they spin the plate on top of it. They will invariably, invariably, they will spin more than one plate, won't they? And what happens when they get multiple plates spinning? They have to keep them all going, don't they? They have to run back and forth to keep all the plates up on their, their respective sticks. And if they don't, then disaster befalls them. And, and that's the whole point of the, the thing. How many plates can they keep spinning? Well, that's great for entertainment. It's a terrible way to do theology. I'm going to give you just four and say, focus here. Now, I know there are some, and I'll, I'll single out only one, uh, Dr. John Hagee. Dr. Hagee is a longtime pastor in San Antonio, a great level of respect for Dr. Hagee. I might disagree with him on some key issues, but I have a great deal of respect for how God has used him. He's taken an entire wall of his auditorium and devoted it to a schedule of events for the end times. How will this play out? I don't know how many times he has had to update it over the years, but it really doesn't matter. I don't disrespect his, his passion or his zealousness for understanding that, but I must, must caution you that this view of end times, it's always growing. When I was a seminary student in the early 90s during the Gulf War, the first one, one of the most popular books on the market was Armageddon, the oil, uh, the Middle East and oil, how God will bring judgment there. Well, that's on par now with the same book that I got when I was a brand new uh, youth minister in, in uh, the summer of 1988 that came to our office that said 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. And it was a really handy book because if you flipped it over, it had another book. You could read the same book just the other way. I couldn't quite decide which one was more apropos of the, the issues at hand. What I'm saying to you is this. Don't become so in, consumed with eschatology that you forget why Jesus came and why he is returning. All right. Perhaps you'll want to talk about that before we move on to something else. I wonder, my friend Katie has the microphone, or she soon will. I wonder if you might have a question you want to ask about this before we move on. With the energy she's putting into it, I'm presuming she sees one. Well, how would Dr. Still counteract your statement or unbelief that Satan is currently bound? So, I don't want to speak for Todd too much, but... Uh, we'll let him defend himself next time he comes. Uh, but my, my thinking is, Todd would say, imagine what Satan would be like if he weren't bound. If he was given full reign. So is, is Satan bound? To some degree, I would say yes, because God in his kindness and in his sovereignty allows uh, Satan the latitude he has. Uh, but as to uh, why is he given such a long chain, I don't know how Todd might answer that. Someone else. Perhaps Satan is bound in that he has to go before God and raise an issue concerning us 
before he can touch us, yes, as in Job. <laughs> you, you may very well be right. All right, friends, we'll move along smartly. Uh, if you have something you want to talk about uh, after this, then I'll wait eagerly for you. Uh, let's talk about one particular term, one that, uh, go ahead to the next slide if you'd be so kind. Uh, why doesn't the term rapture appear more prominently in the book of Revelation? Uh, this is a question that comes to me somewhat regularly. Uh, let's be clear, the word rapture does not appear anywhere in scripture. The Latin, the term that we have employed, rapture, is a Latin term. Uh, it means return but it's translated from the, the Greek term parousia. Uh, the Greek term is best translated similarly, return. Now we see the idea of return regularly. Revelation 19, Revelation 20, 1 Thessalonians 4, you can see the others I've listed there. The idea of rapture is very biblical, but if you sit down at a, a, a computer and you type in, where shall I find the term rapture in the Bible? You will be disappointed. Many have. Now, there are some translations that have chosen to include it currently. To translate the word parousia as rapture, no harm in that. But I encourage you to recognize the term rapture is somewhat loaded. Uh, generally speaking, now to use that term identifies you as one of two uh, of the, uh, the views that we've discussed already. It means you are definitely not a post-millennialist. You are definitely not an amillennialist. You have identified yourself as either historic premillennial or more likely dispensational. Um, this, this idea of rapture really has become far more popular, I'll say, in our collective lifetimes than it was, say, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, there, there were several key works, we'll talk about only two of them, that really began to popularize this. One was the Schofield Reference Bible that really set fire to this notion of a rapture uh, that the, the, the idea of it is quite biblical, don't misunderstand me at all, but the idea of it as it's been presented in some of these places, like the Left Behind series, that's the other work that really has caught wind of it, presents a view that maybe we need to modify slightly, meaning that it doesn't mean Christ can't or won't return in a sudden way. Jesus himself said he would. Perhaps, though, we should understand it as a part of the process, not the event in its whole mass. The idea of rapture then, while it does not appear in scripture by that name, the concept most certainly does. All right then, uh, questions you might have about rapture. All right, let's move on. What is the first resurrection? You know, go with me back to Revelation 20, and I want you to see something that is said here that I would have wished our friend John would have said differently. Verse 5 of Revelation 20. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That's what Revelation 20 verse 5 says. Now, this corresponds with Jesus' teachings on the resurrection of the just, Luke 14. The resurrection of life, Luke 5, John 5. But is this in John 5... John 5. In Revelation 20, verse 5, that same resurrection. There have already been a resurrection earlier in this same section, and yet John says this is the first resurrection. So what are we left with then? This, this conversation that we are struggling with is really about word order then. If John had put that second clause first, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to life, etc. It would be a lot more clear. Or if he had moved that uh, up to the beginning of verse 4, 
that would have made things a whole lot more clear. Can I just pause and say it really doesn't matter? Because the disparity is not the order of the first resurrection and who's in it, but the parallel, or to use the technical term, the chiastic nature, two things crossing over between the first resurrection and the second death. This, friends, this is the problem. When we see the first resurrection, let us rejoice that we are in it. Those who sin Christ fall into that category. For those who are not, for those who have not accepted Jesus' gracious gift, they are raised to be put into their eternal place. What joy for the first, what pain for the second. What is then the first resurrection? It is the resurrection of life. It is one that calls us yet again to the master who made us and gave his son on our behalf. Questions you might have about that? Yeah, I didn't think so. Let's press on. Where will, where will believers be during the millennium and what will they do? Let us pause here for a moment and uh, see if I can make an analogy. In the balcony of our chapel, we have a clock. That clock, um, that clock is uh, running as it always does. And yet it's on a different level, isn't it? It's not here with us it is above us what if say the translation from uh, this floor to that one wasn't just a matter of steps but rather one of an epic too just by nature of being translated from the bottom floor to the balcony you were still on God's time, but you were definitely not on time with the people on the first floor. I, I hope that you'll hear my heart on this. I believe somewhat confidently that heaven uh, is not linked in the same sense that we are to time on earth. They have their own schedule. Hear me, all of it is God's time. It all belongs to him. We are all God's children, whether we are there or we are here. But go with me back to October 29th of this past year when the Lord called my sister Karen home to be with the Lord. I believe I believe that at that moment she arrived in the presence of her Savior. I believe that she joined my mother and celebrated Christmas at home with her. I believe that they wait for us there and that there is a reunion ahead for us. I believe that heaven is where God is and those who are in Christ, they are already there. So is it the millennium for them, or is it our time, those still waiting for the millennium? To that, I would say we're on the ground floor there in the balcony. It's all God's time. Theirs just runs over the top of ours. I don't believe that we're on the same schedule. Now, does that mean that we run ahead in time or that they drop back? when the resurrection comes. I, I don't know that. That's a bit above my pay grade, as they say. But I do know that when the word of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that I can count on that. And I think you should be able to as well. That brings me back to the question I asked. 
Where will believers be during the millennium and what will they do? Here's some things that I think we can say confidently. One, worship. Our primary objective for all of eternity will be what God made us for in the first place. Worship. You want a picture of it, go back to Revelation 4 and 5. Now, here's the temptation. And this is a conversation I had with some people that I dearly love not so long ago. What if, and I ask this sincerely, you don't like the songs they're singing in heaven? Or worse yet, the way they're doing it. Before the Lord called my mother home, knowing my great distaste for the Gaither style of music, she said, Darren, what are you going to do when you get home to heaven and find Bill Gaither is God's favorite? I said, I think I'll suffer along with it, Mom. It'll be all right. I caution you, though, against believing that preference makes worship. It doesn't. Preference does not equal worship. Just because you prefer a certain style of music doesn't make it worship. Now, I'd mind make it worshipful for you, but we don't see anything in Revelation 4 and 5 that gives us a hint of what we might expect from the musical style in heaven. All we have are the lyrics. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. The whole earth is filled with your glory. I don't know what that'll sound like, but I can't wait to hear it. Here's another thing we'll do. We'll reign with Christ. Revelation 2, verses 26 and 28. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 6. Speak to the saints sharing a role with Christ. You might add to that Romans 8, where we are co-heirs with Christ. We will reign with him. And how, how is that possible? Let's pause for a moment and say, it is not save for God's grace. Because of Jesus' kindness to us, he's invited us to draw up a seat at the table or, more accurately, a place in the throne room. Now, some will hear that and maybe even embrace that and say, I always knew I was royalty. Nothing wrong with that as long as you recognize it's because of Jesus, not you. Jesus did that on your behalf. Our place in judgment is not ours to claim either. I had a conversation with a, another pastor not long ago about a man in his church that had a dark past, difficult past, one that, that has stained him as you might expect such a choice, such a series of choices would lead you to. The biggest hurdle that we have with people with a past is not letting them be defined by their past. If all of us had to live with the scarlet letter on the outside, as some do, then we would do ourselves no favors, nor would any of us find a seat at a place with good people at the table. I caution you with this reign with Christ to recognize that is an imputed, a granted place, not an earned one. And you might say, but Darren, these are only two things that you've given us. I know. I wish I could say there are more things we can really be confident scripturally that are our duties and responsibilities in heaven. But let me tip my hand for the next couple of weeks, especially two weeks from today when we get to Revelation 21. The Bible says precious little about our activities in heaven. It says a lot about heaven. It doesn't say much about what we will do there. And so we're free to imagine it as we choose to. I've been told by my mother that Bill Gaither's music will be the soundtrack. I've been told by others, my Hispanic brothers and sisters, that Spanish will be the language of heaven. I can't argue with either one, because Scripture doesn't delineate it one way or the other. 
I'm even told by my friend Terry Williamson that there will be baseball in heaven. Perhaps Terry uh, is correct. He certainly knows by now. But we don't know. Beyond these two privileges that are given to us in the millennium, we can't really say much definitively. Questions you might have about that. Yeah. Talk about just the uh, scripture has a lot of references to the rewards system yeah. in heaven. So, yeah, what, so what do you think about that? So uh, the, uh, there are, are several crowns uh, mentioned in heaven. Uh, the crown of righteousness, crown of life. Uh, the, these crowns, uh, though, seem to be of little value uh, in heaven because the saints continue to put them down. One of my favorite passages in Revelation 4 is when the, the, the 24 elders take their crowns and place them at the feet of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I have something valuable, I don't, I don't generally place it on the ground. I hold it close, especially if it's crown that's supposed to designate me as, as royalty. I would want to keep that on my head. I want people to know who I am and be, be impressed by that, right? And yet that doesn't seem to be the impetus in heaven. Uh, John 14 is a great example of that. We've long understood it in the King James English, and there's no harm in the translation. There are many mansions. Well, the, 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 the term could be just as easily translated rooms, as if we were all in one big house sharing a dormitory-style room. I don't know when the last time you had to live in an apartment or share a dormitory space with lots of other people, but that doesn't sound nearly as exotic or reverential as many mansions waiting for us. So what will we, what will we find there in heaven as well as worship? What will we find in heaven besides reigning with Christ? We'll find these crowns, and we'll find each other. We'll find knowledge. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, we'll know fully even as we are fully known. We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks when we get to Revelation 21. But uh, the, the, the hardest reality is um, there's a lot of questions about heaven that are good questions. Scripture just doesn't answer them. We know at least as much, maybe more, about hell than we do heaven. And that's a frustration. Uh, because it, it's caused us to say, well, I'd, I'd sure like to know uh, more. Yeah, wouldn't we? <laughs> I'm not, not trying to be smarmy there. Um, but we, we are left with two choices. One, uh, an acknowledgement that we... Uh, don't know all we'd like to know and that knowledge is out of our reach or two, an insistence on receiving that knowledge and so we invent it on our own. There have been a lot of those. I choose the first. Since God is preparing that home for me and goodness and mercy shall follow me all the way home, I will trust that God in his mercy, in his goodness, and his good time will take me to find my questions answered. I've had the occasion to stand at the bedside of many who've been called home to heaven from where I was standing. In almost every context, I can only remember one or two, it was just like slipping into an easy bath. No shock, no thrashing, no animosity, just a quiet leisure. One dear saint and I didn't ask permission from their family, so I'll let him remain unidentified. Some of their last words were, it's beautiful. <laughs> That's enough for me. Seems almost anticlimactic to ask the fifth question after that. Maybe we'd do well to leave this for another night. I think we shall. I just want you to go out with this knowledge, friends. Because of who Jesus is, 
That is why we have any. Any what, Darren? Any. Any hope? Any peace? Any joy? Any future? Any home? Any family? I want you today to rejoice in that. Because irrespective of the eschatological view that you have for yourself or the one that you regard as true and the others as uh, heresy, I want you to recognize that it is because of Jesus we can even have that argument. And so tonight, uh, rejoice that Jesus has made you his own and given you that future that hope, that peace. All right, any other sum-up questions before we call it done? All right, my friend Gary, I should be worried. <laughs> I'm going to make it simple, but there's two points. Yes, sir. <clears throat> One, you started by making four points. Yeah. And if we are here in the future, in eternity, to worship Jesus as we should be now. Yes, sir. Okay. What if we have spent all of our time along with everyone else since time began having our opinions? What if our opinions don't matter anymore and we worship Jesus and he tells us what he really meant? I, I, I would like to say, Gary, that's a, a very astute point. Um, our opinions sometimes trip us up because we begin to believe that our opinions are as sanctified as Jesus himself and his word. Surely God agrees with me. I guess I've walked far enough in some respects now to say I know how fallible I am and how prone my opinions are. For example, my friend Bobby Page seated right behind you. He's a big OU fan. We can, yeah, I knew I'd bring the name in from Barry. We can disagree and still love each other. He can be wrong if he wants. <laughs> we'll, just, uh, we'll just steer clear of that Saturday in October and we'll be fine. Likewise, for people who think coffee tastes good, I couldn't disagree more. Tastes like motor oil as far as I'm concerned. But if you drink coffee, you won't hear me say that to you, not unless it's in jest. So your point is well taken. Opinions are not eternal. We will surrender them at the throne of Christ, and there we will rejoice that uh, God gave us each other. That said, imagine if all of us shared the same opinion. What a bland and tasteless world this would be. The very fact that we are created in God's image with the beauty and glory of free choice and differences suggests that God wants us to love each other in spite of ourselves. Anybody else? All right, friend. Oh, we got one more back there. Is that Miss Vita? Mm -hmm. Hello, Miss Vita. I'm not really sure how I need to ask this, but in verse 4, it talks about the having the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the hand. And my mama was very definite telling me when I was a small child to never let the mark be put on my forehead. She didn't stress the hand. But anyway... Is that going to be something that's during the millennium or, or is that something that comes at the end of time? I've, I've just, I've been listening to you and you didn't mention that, so I was, I was curious. It's a good question, Ms. Vita. So the question really comes down to how you understand end times. Does the mark of the beast in Revelation 13 precede the millennium or not? Uh, if it is a part of the millennium, say as amillennialism uh, has it, 
then no, uh, it's not contiguous. It's not concurrent. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it is. Uh, but if you are one who say is a dispensationalist, then those two are separated. So uh, it, I'm not trying to, to uh, um, muddy the waters, as my grandmother would say. Uh, I'm but not I'm, I just go with what. <laughs> so I will tell you, my belief is that this in verse 4, is referencing a past event that is still reflected on their bodies. They still wear the mark of the beast. They still have it on their foreheads. They still have it on their hands. Whether they're living or dead, that we cannot say at this point. But we can say that they still bear the mark that they chose willingly in Revelation 13. One of the greatest challenges Revelation presents to us is the fact that it isn't necessarily chronological in nature. Chapter 13 does not necessarily follow chapter 12. Likewise for chapter 20. The only thing we can be sure is that Revelation 21 and 2 come at the end. The rest of it is somewhat questionable. So your question is, where does it fall? I think this is a past event by the time Jesus sees it in Revelation 20. Not right now. Not at this moment. Correct. Now, I will tell you that for some, they regarded, say, uh, 80 years ago when some were being marked uh, with tattoos in Nazi Germany concentration camps. There were some who regarded that as the mark of the beast, including some who received that unwillingly. Uh, that was a hard conversation for theologians such as Rudolf Bultmann, a great German theologian, and some of the others of that era. Uh, so what will God do with that? I think God knows the heart. Those who received the mark of the beast did so willingly, unlike those who didn't want it. All right, friends, if you have another question, I'll be waiting for you right down here. Let me pray for us and we'll be concluded for the evening. Gracious Jesus, thank you for your love for us, for its sustaining power and for the joy that we find in one another's company. Thank you, Lord, that we are all different. Some of us might be very similar, but we are even still not identical. That's a part of the joy that you've given us and the multi-flavored grace that you've poured out. Tonight, Lord, let us go in the joy that that brings and let us rejoice, Lord, because of you, your love. Let us be mindful, Lord, that our views of the end times do not lock us in. They don't anchor us eternally the way you do. So let us major on the majors and let the minors stay where they are. Sustain us with your love and thank you, Lord, for putting us together to walk this road. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you soon.